This program is brought to you by the Provost Teaching Fellows at the Faculty Innovation Center of the University of Texas at Austin. So, it doesn't, actually, this doesn't involve an Italian swear. It involves an English swear. If I had been clever, I would have sworn in Italian. But I stuck up my hand, put out my middle finger, and yelled as loud as I could, F you. And at that point, all the motorcycles stopped and turned around and came back and encircled this small group of us. Oh, no! Who were there, including this, this poor English guy who was in college at the time. It's like, what just happened? Who we are as people shapes who we are as teachers. About how our lived experience informs our teaching. Uh, we can be flexible and adapt and change this. You're, you're free to do that. We don't have to have it perfect. We are about getting folks together from all walks of teaching life. The key phrase you, you suggest there is it, it has to be done collectively. We have so much to learn from the other side of campus. <laughs> from the University of Texas at Austin, This is The Other Side of Canvas. Hi, I'm Katie Dawson, Associate Professor in the Theater and Dance Department in the College of Fine Arts and a Provost Teaching Fellow. And I'm Dixie Stamforth, Professor of Instruction in the Department of Kinesiology and Health Education and also a Provost Teaching Fellow. Today, we're talking with another Provost Teaching Fellow, Dr. Adam Rabinowitz. Adam earned his PhD from the Interdepartmental Program in Classical Art and Archaeology at the University of Michigan. He is currently an Associate Professor at the University of Texas in the Classics Department and a 2002 Fellow of the American Academy in Rome and a field archaeologist. His archaeological research focuses on daily life, domestic architecture, commensal practices, and the lived experience of culture contact. Most recently, Adam has begun to work on questions of long-term archival preservation and digital dissemination of rich contextual data sets through several digital humanities projects. He is also working in UT Austin's Bridging Barriers Planet Texas 2050 project, and we cannot wait to hear more about that. In addition to all the incredible interdisciplinary research that you lead, Adam, and support others to lead across the university, Dixie and I also know that you are a fantastic teacher, someone who's deeply connected to ongoing research and reflection in and on everything you do as an educator. We've had great conversations with you about this, and we're so excited to bring these dialogues to this listening group. You are the right person for today's conversation on the relationship between interdisciplinary research and teaching. We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) We know. We know. And we know that so much of both, really, we've talked about, Adam, what and how we teach is based on our core values as humans. So we'd like to begin by talking about your professional and personal background. So I wonder if you could share your story with us. We'd love to hear about how you got interested in archaeology and your journey from there to here with us today. Sure. I'm looking forward to talking about this with you guys. And I think I'm glad you framed it that way because I think there's a pretty direct through line from my own experience starting pretty early on to the, the values and principles that I bring to instruction in the classroom. So, like every other six-year-old boy, I wanted to be a paleontologist when I was a first grader. And I, I used to 
collar people and say, you know what I want to be? I want to be a paleontologist. And I can spell it too, which was my ice-breaking line of small, small nerdishness. But as I grew older, I realized I was very interested in the past. I was very interested in the idea that you could find things out about the past by looking in the ground. And when I was about to start my sophomore year in high school, I have an aunt who is an archaeologist, a Roman archaeologist, and she was starting a project in Sicily. And she asked if I wanted to come and participate. And so I was I was 15. This would have been this was the summer before my sophomore year, and the catch was that the the project season was going to run through September. So I had to miss the first month of my sophomore year of high school, and I said, "Yes, I am all in." <laughs> I bet you didn't think for 10 seconds about that. Not even a moment. Not having any idea of what it was going to be like. You know, I had heard about it from her, heard about the practice of archaeology from her before, but really didn't know what it was going to be like in the field and it was obviously a transformative experience for me it made me realize that the the exciting part of poking around in the ground to find out things about the past was being able to connect with prior human lives and not just in a particular moment in time but across long spans of time which sort of gives you a sense of perspective on your own place in the world and on place of human beings in the world more more broadly. And it was in Sicily where the food is wonderful and the beaches are great and the Greek ruins are fantastic. It also alerted me to the the joy of participating in work with people from other cultures. The entire two months, we were both excavating and doing what's called field survey, where you walk up and down plowed fields looking for scatters of potsherds on the ground to map out sort of areas of denser human activity against the the general background noise of human activity in places that have been occupied for a very long time. The two months that I was there were entirely a learning experience from start to finish. Everything was new. Everything was about doing stuff. So it, it wasn't a situation where the people with less experience were just made to move wheelbarrows up and down. Everybody was doing everything. And that, that moment of learning a new, a new area of research, a new discipline, a new part of the world's history, by doing it with your hands, cemented in me an idea that I still bring to the table, which is that you learn best by doing things. There is an important moment where you learn by by hearing from other people how something is done, by learning new information, by getting a a sort of a, a narrative frame for how the pieces of the story fit together. But the things that you remember, the things that you internalize come from doing rather than than hearing or reading. So, Adam, it sounds to me like you had an early experiential learning opportunity and I know that, that you, as well as Katie and I, that's our brand as teachers. We love, you know, experiential teaching and learning. Was there a particular experience that occurred that summer that was maybe pivotal or really impactful that you could share with us, or even just a funny story? I'm trying to, I'm trying to think what the right piece of this is. You know, it's, it's funny. One of the things I did as a condition of missing that, that month of high school was I was asked to keep a journal. So I kept a journal, a very sort of detailed journal in which I, you know, wrote down lots of stuff that was that was happening. By virtue of having written it down and having returned to that journal before, 
the experience is less a series of snapshots and more a sort of continuous narrative. So it's harder to pick out things. I will tell a story about being 15 and uncomfortable that has nothing to do with archaeology. Please. <laughs> That's really what I was digging for. But it is, it was an incredibly memorable moment. And it involved at least one person who has also gone on to become a, a fairly well-known archaeologist in the UK. So who I recently refound on Twitter. So it, it has an Italian swear in it. So I, if I, you'll have to bleep me out if, it, if necessary. <laughs> so I had a pair of jeans and this was, you know, I was 15. This was about 1988. And I had carefully ripped these jeans in horizontal rips and then bleached them. So they were, I was like, these are, these are cool rockstar jeans. But I felt way too self-conscious to wear them much. But I finally decided I was going to wear them during a field trip that we were taking to visit some of the, the various sites in southern Sicily, including this place called the Valley of the Temples at a town called Agrigento. So I wore these pants, but then I was hypersensitive about people looking at the pants. And while we were at Agrigento, a, a couple of English tourists walked by and I heard them when they got about 20 feet beyond us say, did you see that boy's trousers? And so I was getting more and more self-conscious about this. We finished our field trip. We went back to the city that we were staying in, which is the city of Marsala. And to just provide a little bit of context, Western Sicily in the 19, late 1980s was a fairly rough place. In the early 1990s, the mafia blew up a federal prosecutor on a road outside of Palermo. So it was just, you know, you, you had to sort of be careful. But I was getting sort of, I was already uptight about the pants. And we were walking along the street and a group of young guys on uh, mopeds scooted by. And one of them sort of brushed me and said something, which I assumed was about my pants, because I was already hypersensitized. So, it doesn't, actually, this doesn't involve an Italian swear. It involves an English swear. If I had been clever, I would have sworn in Italian. But I stuck up my hand, put out my middle finger, and yelled as loud as I could, F you. And at that point, all the motorcycles stopped and turned around and came back and encircled this small oh, no! group of us who were there, including this, this poor English guy who was in college at the time. It's like, what just happened? It's an intercultural exchange moment. I was thinking this may be where we're headed is interdisciplinary and intercultural. Uh, well, translational, right? See, so the guy who had said something started yelling at me and gesticulating. And he was yelling at me in Italian. And eventually I said, non parlo italiano, which means I don't speak Italian. And they all said, oh, and they got on the motorini and drove off again. And so we were not murdered in the streets of Marsala in, in 1988, but lived to, <laughs> to tell the tale. And it, you know, it's, it sticks with me both because it's, very embarrassing to think about that earlier version of myself. But also it has always been a sort of cautionary tale for me about reading cultural cues as you have internalized your own cultural cues, right? So I was, you know, recently out of junior high school. I was in the early stages of high school in America. Anything anybody said was going to be cutting, right, as an American teenager, and this may or may not have been, although I'm pretty sure that what he said uh, when he drove by was something like nice pants. 
you know, to which I responded with a, you know, an obscenity. But taking the time to sort of observe more carefully and try to understand what's happening on the other side of that language and cultural barrier has been absolutely critical to my ability to work in environments where I didn't know what was going on. When I came to UT, the first place that I was working, I came to UT specifically to work with a professor named Joe Carter in Crimea. And all of my work up until then had been in Italy. And by the time I left Italy, I really, I spoke Italian. I knew what was going on. I wouldn't have made the same mistake twice, especially not in that part of Sicily, which I knew a lot more about by then. But I switched to the Greek colonization of the Black Sea area where I didn't know the culture, where I had never traveled, where I didn't speak Russian. And I had to learn, but I, I was much more deliberate about understanding and waiting to, to speak or to intervene in that environment than I had been at the age of 15, which, I mean, I don't know that that does me much credit. Like, I hope most of us would be better at doing that at the age of, you know, 30 than they were at 15. That particular moment, I think, highlighted that issue with a certain amount of personal risk that luckily didn't, didn't come to pass. You know, that skill, Adam, that you just talked about is something I still see in you. You know, I think that capacity to read a room, to kind of think about intercultural connections and needs and, you know, to kind of ask or explain even that idea of saying, I don't speak this language, that kind of humility or lack of ego to be able to also, you know, own up that you don't know what's going on. This is going to sound a little odd in the pivot, but... I actually think it's one of your greatest strengths as a leader. We get to cross over a little bit on the Planet Texas 2050 project. And there I see you leading a highly interdisciplinary group of researchers. I'm, I'm way out on the side from a lot of folks coming from the arts. And of course, that project's looking at how we're making Texas more resilient in the face of unprecedented demographic and climate change. And, you know, I see you managing that room, particularly because we're now working on a, a new iteration project together with lots of people who do lots of different things in lots of different ways. So talk to us a little bit about how you how you manage that. What is When you go into a new space, it's quite similar to our classrooms, right? We often have students from different parts of the university coming to take a class. So you can speak to it from the 2050 place or your classroom space, but I'm, I'm interested in that skill that I see you do so well in terms of bringing people together to try to figure things out. Yeah, so that's a, it's an interesting way to frame the question. And it, it also goes back to a lot of those early experiences. So after that first dig, there were some other excavation projects. One that I did in England by myself. I mean, I wasn't the only person there, but I went alone at 16 and then sort of participated in an excavation in the UK, which I, having a 17-year-old daughter, I'm like, how did my parents say, like, just get on a plane, like, go to England, come back in six weeks, like, we'll see you then. <laughs> Tell us what you learned. Yeah, but then I, I sort of, I kept doing that, and I was, I was digging all through college as well. And so archaeology is, of necessity, a, a collaborative and interdisciplinary activity, because it's just not possible to know enough stuff to do everything yourself. You can be great at doing two, three, four, seven things, but there's always going to be some other thing that you don't do. So, you know, I, my own set of talents, I think, lie in the strategic and stratigraphic sections. So I sort of understand 
how deposits are being formed at a site. And I understand where we should be looking to figure out certain things. And that, that makes sense to me, but I'm not somebody who does ceramics analysis. And when we were digging another site that my aunt was in charge of, the site of Coza on the Tuscan seacoast, there was a medieval cemetery and there was a physical anthropologist who uh, was moonlighting as a physical anthropologist for this project. And her day job was being the chief medical examiner of the, uh, the Toronto police. Because again, you know, it sounds you, like a book. Yeah, exactly. So she knew all sorts of stuff that I didn't, obviously, and that, that we could all learn from. And I would never have claimed then or now to be someone who specialized in osteoarchaeology and could do justice to the excavation of human remains. So already in that field experience, in that experiential environment, it was clear to me that I, I couldn't do everything. And that you only really get the full picture if you have a lot of people who are talking to each other about the picture. And if they're working in parallel or separately or often they're sort of silos, then you can't, you can't put that picture together. You just get the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle spread out on a table. And that's, I mean, there's, there's something to be said for, you know, you had an empty table. Now you have a table full of jigsaw puzzle pieces. But what you want is the picture in the jigsaw puzzle. And so that collaborative environment, I think, shaped my approach to scholarship in general. Which is, you know, it, it's tricky because it doesn't align as well with the way things work in the humanities, in academia, as it does with, you know, the way things work in the sciences, where there's sort of a natural expectation that you're collaborating and that you have multi-authored pieces, right? Whereas the humanities focuses on what idea came out of your giant brain. That's What's what your I book? What's your book, Adam? What's your book? Right, exactly. So I, I, I'm not interested in what you've sort of organized and put together. What I'm interested in is the, the single thing that can be attributed to you and you alone. And so that's been uncomfortable, but also offered a lot of opportunities, because I think that as people are encouraged to come into collaborative experiences, they realize that they are themselves really rewarding and, and working across those disciplinary boundaries is rewarding and opens all kinds of new doors. And a lot of the emerging fields in the humanities are, in fact, collaborative and interdisciplinary. So the... Digital humanities is a good example where you can't, again, you can't know everything. So you often have teams of people who are working together and maybe you know how to do the programming, but somebody else has the questions about the texts or the objects you're looking at. Somebody else altogether knows how to do visualization in an effective way. And the same is true for the kind of environmental studies that Planet Texas 2050 has been focusing on. Because if you want to do history right now that takes into account the, the rich variety of scientific evidence for the environment in the past. You have to engage with environmental scientists. You have to engage with geomorphologists. You have to engage with people who study, you know, things that are completely outside of your area. So there's that interdisciplinary frame, which encouraged not just collaboration, but, but listening and communication, which I taught in as well as learned in. So as I got more experience, I started teaching other students in the field. And the idea was never that you sort of find the one student who's good at it and then you give everything to that student and everybody else pushes a wheelbarrow. The idea was you move people around, you expose them to different things, you make sure that everybody is engaged, you find connections between people's interests and experiences and the things that you're doing in the field. And that I transported wholesale into the classroom is always really important to me to find the point of contact between the subject matter or the, the content that's, that's being taught and the, the interests and experiences and unique personal frame of the students. 
It's easier to do that in smaller classes, but to a certain extent, I can do it in big classes. And I, I try in all of those classes also to model that collaborative process that was so fundamental to my development as a researcher. And I know because I have a high school aged child that group projects are always the bane of everybody's existence, that there's always one person who has to do all the work and everybody else sort of slacks off. But I, I almost always have some kind of group project. And I've put a lot of effort over the last decade into trying to understand how those work. I mean, and this is the other part of it. And you're right, Katie, I I feel like I have a lot of practice admitting that I don't know stuff because that seems to be most of what I do is, is admit that I don't know stuff. Such a powerful stance, Adam. I mean, it is. I mean, it invites other people to bring their funds of knowledge and experiences to the conversation. You know, and I know you bring that into your classroom too, where you let every student sort of look at what their expertise is in a group project. And, and, you know, hopefully we'll get to hear you talk more about that too down the road. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's been, it's been good for my teaching because I think that in some ways I, you know, I like being in front of a crowd. I like to talk. You have already figured this out because you both know me, your listeners are probably figuring it out as we go. So I enjoy that part of it a lot and it would be easy enough to give engaging lectures and, then, you know, not push too hard on the assignments and exams and get good ratings and and be fine without actually learning anything about teaching. Because I certainly didn't have any pedagogy training in my graduate program, with the exception of the semesters I spent at the very end of my program teaching in a great books course, which had a, a ton of room for the agency of the, we called them graduate instructors at the University of Michigan. But it had a ton of room for agency and for development. We each taught two classes of a single section of 20 students in this very large great books course under the aegis of this professor who had been doing it for a very long time and had a sort of a model. And he, we had weekly meetings with all of the, all of the graduate student instructors. We'd all sort of coordinate on some of the stuff that we were doing. We'd share information about how activities and lesson plans went and we'd talk about teaching. And that was the most sort of pedagogically focused experience that I had during my time as a, as a graduate student. So I had some, that, that sort of minor background, but theory, forget it. Formal classes in an education program, forget it. Any kind of, you know, bibliographic resources, forget it. I would just like, I'm going to come in and talk to you about stuff. And I hear some stuff that worked for me that I kind of remember when I was a student. So I'm going to do that. So I, I have been, I have attempted to be, to the extent that, you know, time and everything else permits, deliberate about understanding how the things that I'm adding actually work and how people talk about them and whether there are actually studies that demonstrate they're effective and if so, under what circumstances. And this has been one of the great joys of being part of the PTF program. I just hear from so many people who have so much better a grounding in educational theory and in practice and who have done this stuff and who can say, well, if you're going to do groups, then have them establish their own norms rather than just telling them, you know, here's the rubric, you're going to be graded on this. And then have them, you know, be responsible to each other as part of a community rather than just saying, you seven students are in a group, I'm going to grade you like this, go. Which is, I think, what all high school students and many college students hate much, so much about group projects is that they, they don't have a, a really robust means of mutual accountability for the students. Just the accountability to the professor who takes it all either collectively as a whole 
or who splits it into individual parts and then just grades everybody separately, which isn't the same as a collaborative work anyway. So I think that 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 was a long way around of explaining the connection between those things. But I've had I've had to spend most of my professional development from 15 years old onwards recognizing that I don't know stuff and finding ways to ask people what they know and, and learning from other people. And I've also spent that time working in collaborative environments where the best stuff got done when you could break down those disciplinary boundaries and the best stuff got done when you could find ways to effectively work with other people rather than just, you know, saying, you know what, I'm just going to do it myself. Well, it's a very refreshing approach, Adam, and we have learned by getting to interact with you across disciplines for for both of us, probably me more so a little bit than, than Katie. But I wonder, you know, connected to this conversation, can you think of, of one of the projects that you've developed that, that is kind of captured by this both interdisciplinary approach as well as something that you, you were thinking, this works in the field, this should really work in the classroom, and, or this is a real need that we have, and I think this would be a really good way to try to figure it out. And I know you've done a number of those things over the years because I've been impacted by them. Is there one that that you could maybe share with us today, kind of the inception of the idea and how it has developed and rolled out over time? Sure. And I I think that I will, you can ask me a follow-up question about undergraduate teaching if you you like, but I want to focus on a graduate class that I taught, which was, you know, the, I think epitomizes a number of the things I've just said and was also only partially successful in ways that were meaningful to me, but maybe less so for the students. So fall of 2019, I taught a graduate seminar called Digital Approaches to Antiquity. The purpose of this graduate seminar was to, as part of the digital studies graduate portfolio that Lars Henriks and Tanya Clement and a couple of other people and I put together over the last few years, to have a, a sort of disciplinarily focused introduction to the digital humanities. So there are a couple of classes in English and in rhetoric that are actual introductions to the digital humanities, including the theoretical component, the critical component, as well as the component where you're, you're doing stuff. And so I, I wanted to teach something that was more focused on the classical past, which has a pretty unusual and broad set of resources. There's a bit of something for everyone. They have texts, so you could do text-based things, but there's also art, there's also material culture, there's archaeology, there's all sorts of, of things that go on. And there's a pretty, a pretty active community in that sector. And, and there has been, really since the beginning of Digital Humanities, one of the earliest projects that people tend to cite as a Digital Humanities project was a index of the works of Thomas Aquinas on punch cards, right? Computer punch cards by this priest named Roberto Busa. Anyway, so the class was open to everybody. And I had a bunch of archaeologists from classics, which was to be expected. But I also had several students from the art history program, a student from the master's student from the School of Information, and a really interested and talented undergraduate in classics. So it was a very, you know, to the extent that that's a a diverse pool of people, it was pretty diverse for us, at least. And I tried to divide it between talking about the, the sort of theoretical aspects and the, the critical problems with breaking information that is essentially qualitative into these quantitative chunks and then doing things to it and experimenting with tools. And in the end, I think the way that I did it, the students found kind of unsuccessful. And I, I recognized the critique, I think, was justified. They felt that they didn't have enough time to really 
capture any of the stuff that they were doing, right? So everything was flashing on the screen and then disappearing. They felt that they spent maybe too much time talking about theory and the sort of critical side of stuff. Some of the things I had a lot of knowledge about, some of the things I had very little knowledge about, and I was learning with them as we went. So this is another one of those, like, now that I've gotten good at something, I'll just throw that away and start something that I'm not good at, that I don't know anything about and pretend that I can teach it. Moments. I think that's, that's how we move ourselves forward, right? That's how teaching, it's what keeps me engaged as a professor and a learner is that I'm constantly learning new things and, you know, and faking it till I make it. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and this is, this is, you know, this is very much how, how I roll. It's what, it, what, it's what keeps me going as well. And, you know, so the students had to suffer through this first version of this class. But as a final assignment, I had, with a collaborative option, so not mandatory, but option, the assignment to write a grant proposal for an actual call of some sort for digital humanities projects. And they didn't have to do the entire thing, because some of these are incredibly burdensome. But they had to produce the narrative, they had to come up with a data management plan, they had to think through some of the budgeting issues so that we could talk about what things actually cost which I didn't know when I started writing grants for digital humanities. You know, what is, what is the hourly rate of a medium experienced web developer? But this is, I mean, it's critical, right? Because if you under budget, then you can't do the thing that you said you were going to do. And if you over budget, then they won't approve the grant because they'll say, what is this? this? You don't know what you're doing. So anyway, we had this project. Some of the students did things by themselves because they just had ideas and they wanted to, they wanted to do it by themselves. A couple, a few of the students did things in pairs which again is completely reasonable. My own sort of most significant digital humanities project right now is a complicated thing that is an online gazetteer of period definitions, which I can explain later. But it's been since the inception, me and the co-primary investigator, Ryan Shaw at the University of North Carolina, he's a library scientist who has programming expertise and students who also know how to build you know, these web backends. And I am sort of the domain expert for archaeology and periodization. He also, this is unfair because he actually also wrote a PhD about periodization in historical literature for a school of information at Berkeley. So he, he probably has more to bring to the table than, than I do, but, but I'm good at trying to grab people by the collar and say, Hey, I know you have a, you know, set of periods in your database. Can we have them? And so I, I was corralling people and dragging people in. But anyway, so the art history students got together and wrote up a proposal for Texas funder, Humanities Texas, centered on the William Battle collection of casts of ancient sculpture that are currently held by the Blanton. And again, these were mock grants. Um, they were evaluated. We did a sort of in-class evaluation. People did presentations. We juried them, essentially, so that people could also see how other people's grants had developed and how different calls for proposals looked and what they expected. But it turned out that there was an actual call that they were working towards. And I investigated with the program officer at Humanities Texas to say, is this something that you might be interested in for real? And they said, yeah, sure. So those graduate students took that grant and went forward, turned it into an actual grant proposal with all of the bells and whistles and submitted it to Humanities Texas. And I sort of served as the figurehead because they needed, it needed to be submitted through a faculty member. But they did the work. They wrote it out. I consulted with them and they got funded. So it became an actual thing that the thing that they had done as practice and modeling in the class turned into an actual thing, which 
I've been, you know, I'm, I'm responsible for the paperwork, but I've been sharing the paperwork with the graduate students as we go so that they understand not just how you write a proposal, but what goes into keeping track of things and who is going to be asking you to provide cost share documentation and who is going to be asking you for updates and how you write an update for a project when COVID struck and you haven't been able to get in most of it done and, you know, how you change a budget when you're asked for revisions. So they funded it, but not, they funded about a third of what the students had asked for. So they had to go back to the table and say, okay, so if we only have a third of this, how do we do that? And so they, they revised the budget and trimmed things down, resubmitted, and then UT said, well, now your cost share is too heavy because the amount you're getting is much less than the amount that you are claiming to contribute. So then they had to go back to the table and sort of revise what they were proposing for cost share and how we were going to do that. And, you know, so they, they really have seen the inside of the sausage factory with respect to grant writing and grant management. We're in the process of actually making it happen. They're working with LATES to do some of the web components. So they are starting to understand what it means to work with a, a university division and how who is going to be paying attention and who is not and who's going to be assigned to a project like that. We've been working with the Blanton to try to get access to the casts and to, you know, in these sort of very odd circumstances because we're still in the pandemic, obviously working with high school teachers to try to get them interested in the project, but they're, of course, overloaded by the pandemic and everything else. So it's been, I think, an illuminating experience for them. It makes me think, Adam, about the nature of case studies, right? So in our teaching so often, we cull together various case studies for our students to read. I mean, not in every discipline, but in many of them, you know, and we're looking for examples of practice and this, that, and the other. And like, what a, going back to the idea of experiential learning, what a powerful tool it is that you are your case study, right? I'm going to put you in this actual experience and let you kind of move through it from soup to nuts. And, and those kind of course experiences, those, I don't know, the soft skills, the things that come in and around are work as researchers are, are crucial. And if you are preparing those folks to go on and either be academics, you know, many folks really do need to know, as you said, like how to write a grant, how to do all of that management and human stuff and reporting and organization. Like there's just so many layers to the things that that are involved in that beyond just the going back to the idea of of the human connection, right? How are you communicating with the Blanton versus these other folks? You know, every, you know, it's how are we dialoguing with different people with different sets of languages and experiences and needs? And so it's just a, it's just a powerful example to me of, of how kind of that in situ experiential work can be a real rich source for, for learning. And, and preparation for them, for the for the future that you're really building into them. Um, I'm struck, Katie, as you say that, and, and Adam, your your description of that learning experience. Do you consciously mentor them? Do you really think about what you're doing, or do you just be Adam? You're you're teaching them just like you would in the field. That you have everybody doing different things, and you you have everybody engaged and involved in learning how to work collaboratively and really using each individual skill set like you described previously. Is, does it feel intentional or is it something that, that really just comes out of who you are? So I think that the, the stuff that happens in the classroom on an everyday basis, right, during our sessions, 
a lot of that is is I think just about how I am and how I interact with people for for better or worse right there are parts of that that I would improve if I were better at <laughs> improving elements of my of my character but but with the with the projects I am very deliberate and I this is this is something so I'm in the the tail end of my current iteration of my signature course on the the story of the Trojan War my undergraduate students first semester well now their second semester first year students who many of whom have you know this is their only the zoom a box is their only experience of of college so far they write a research paper that is normally 10 to 12 pages i think in this context probably 8 to 10 pages but that's still more pages of writing than most of them have done in their high school career it's terrifying and i don't have a topic right so i say you need to think of something a question that you need to answer that can be answered with evidence using primary and secondary sources that is somehow related to the stuff that we've covered in the course which is a broad range of things stretching from you know the Greek Bronze Age to 20th century film. So there's lots out there, but they have to figure out what they want to do. And in that process, I have meetings with them. So I ask them to make a proposal. Then we meet about the proposal and I say, well, this is a good idea, but here's where you're going to run out of evidence or here's why this is a, you could answer this all by just reading one work. And that's more like literary criticism, which isn't what we're trying to do with this paper. We're trying to do primary and secondary sources and, you know, triangulation, a range of, of different sources that you can use to get to a particular answer to a question. And that I really focus on how I can help them confront this process at least semi-successfully without the level of fear and confusion that I think attaches to it. For many of us, like through not just at the first time we have to do a paper, but like ongoing, right? It, we all confront this when we're trying to, to write something, especially if we're doing something we haven't done before. It's the same with those grant projects. So what I try to do is to use the resources that I can offer, right? For the undergraduates, it's both being somebody who makes his living, at least in part, by writing. Probably the only other pedagogical training I ever got was, you know, how you interact with people about writing in a way that doesn't, you know, crush them um, and stop them. So I can, I can bring that to the table to help with the writing part. And, you know, the development of research questions is in part what I do. And I realized this year that I should be more explicit about the constraints I'm putting on it because I, I treat it as if it were sort of self-evident what a research paper is. But I realized that what I'm essentially thinking about is uh, history or social science or media studies or American studies kind of research paper, right? That if they try to write an English paper, I tell them not to do that. And it's not that you can't do an, a paper on an author that is a research paper, but I don't want them to do a paper on a single author where they're mainly engaging with their own perceptions of the, the text but this is something that I, I, I think, because of my own background, I treat as if that were sort of natural. And of course it's not, right? Most of the stuff they've written is is essays where they're picking apart a text or expressing an opinion. or Five paragraphs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I need to get better at that. In any case, with the graduate students, I spend a lot of time writing grants, some of them successful, some of them not. I spend a fair amount of time reviewing grants for various different calls. So I can bring to the table my experience as a reviewer and my experience as a writer and within that frame, I mainly helped the students figure out what they were interested in thinking about and how they thought that that was useful in terms of the way that we think of digital humanities. So what, what contribution are they making? How are they intervening in, a, in an ongoing discussion? 
And what does that look like? Who's the audience? Why is it meaningful? Why are people going to be interested? So that I think was a much more deliberate process of mentorship might be too strong a word, but I I spend a lot of time one-on-one or with a group of people who are working together, trying to help them refine their ideas and giving them feedback along the way about how that bounces off the expectations of funding agencies and grantors. Maybe to that point, and this might be our, our wrap up here, Adam, since we're getting near the end, this, this thread you've been pulling through of, you know, bringing disparate folks together or different roles on a team or the kind of embedded life skills. I mean, all of those things seem to me to be the core of what what and why we do interdisciplinary research, right? It, we aren't single entities anywhere, right? In our own little cubicles writing our, you know, like we, we're so interconnected and global and, right, we have to have these skills and we know that the, the kind of more rich or complex meaning making we're going to make is because we're all working in, in, in interdisciplinary ways. If you had to kind of put a, a future to that, where do you think it's going? That is a really tough question on a number of levels, As a community in academia, we're going to have to figure out a way to break the logjam between our calls for interdisciplinarity, right, which is a it's been a buzzword for 30 years. We all love to talk about it and the incentive structures that exist within an institution like UT. Right. And it's very hard to say everybody should be interdisciplinary. But if you write a multi-authored article, you only get one third the credit as you would for a single authored article, right? Because then you're going to spend, if it's the same amount of time, then cost benefit wise, you spend it on writing a single authored article because it counts more for you. So we have to change the dialogue around what counts and what's meaningful. And I think we have to do that in a way that is sensitive to different modes of measurement. I think that 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 hope for interdisciplinarity is going to collide pretty hard with the increasingly sort of Taylorist management principles for the contemporary, you know, university setting where everybody wants to know impact factors and metrics and can you quantify this thing that you did? Okay, you said you had a community influence. How do you measure that? What what exactly is that? Like how many people did you reach? To what extent on a scale of one to 10 were they reached? You know, and so... While I think that that stuff, which are even questions that I know you're dealing with, Adam, in your own classroom, right? When you're, I see you and I've had conversations about that. Like, how do you assess group work, right? In these complex, you know, systems of people doing things. Yeah, and I, I have to say, I mean, I had some some really interesting conversations with Jamie Pennebaker. Was it? It was Project 2021. We're in 2021. We made it. Here we are. We're in 2021. Project 2021 is not anymore, but, but, but about whether, you know, what, what you could measure in terms of success and how you would establish what meaning the stuff that you did had. And I, you know, I have examples where I can say, okay, I know that the thing that I did here was helpful because the student went on to do that thing. I'm working right now in my field project in Romania with a, a PhD uh, student at Penn State, who was a UT alum who wrote a senior thesis with me on archaeogenetics, which I don't know anything about. I learned mostly from him, but that allowed him to go on to archaeogenetics, an archaeogenetics uh, program at Oklahoma, and then to this PhD at Penn State. And now he's coming back and contributing a whole field of knowledge that I was completely unaware of. The 
ancient uh, genetics of the oral microbiome from fossilized dental calculus, right? Until he sort of brought it to the table, which is, and that, it's that kind of magpie, like, uh, let me grab that because I know that's going to be really interesting for this particular setting approach that, that I've generally taken. But in order to give people the freedom to experiment and take chances, you have to be in a situation where you're not punished for taking chances. And we pay a lot of lip service to that. And sometimes we honor it in the event. Um, and I think that that is certainly my case. Like I have to say, I, I was awarded tenure without having written a monograph in a liberal arts college. So there must have been a recognition that the kind of stuff that I was doing was valuable. But I think it's, it's harder to communicate to junior scholars in a, you know, in a pond that is increasingly shrinking. And there you know, are now 200 applicants for every one tenure track job that they shouldn't just do what's safe, um, but take risks that might then get them untenured, right? Or, or prevent them from achieving tenure, at which point you know, they have to go back onto this increasingly savage job market. So we have to change the way we think about this. Could I ask related to that? So if you ran the world, if you, if you created the system, how could we do that? What would that look like? I would create more spaces for interdisciplinary communication among the people who are going to be on P&T committees to start with, so that when they see things that don't look like they're supposed to look from a particular discipline. It's not just that you get a dossier and it's a biologist. And so the, the natural sciences people on the committee say, yeah, yeah, this is good stuff, right? So you humanists, you can all trust us. It's that the humanists have some sense of how things work in the sciences. The scientists have some things, some sense of how things work in the humanities. The scientists and the human and the humanists have some sense of how things work with weird, you know, liminal interdisciplinary work in the humanities or the sciences, right? Um, and I, I mean, this is one of the reasons that Planet Texas has been so exciting, not just because I get to interact with a lot of people who don't do what I do, which is incredibly stimulating and, and drives work that I never would have done otherwise, but also because our presence on campus and the, the things that we're doing to communicate with people and the way that we're trying to pull people into research means that a larger number of people are getting more experience with those interdisciplinary environments and understanding how they work, the pace at which they work, what's slow, what's fast, what you can expect, what's good work, what's problematic work, um, what's work that might seem problematic but is actually good because of the, the things that it is going to accomplish down the road. Uh, and I think that that's, I think that when Dan Jaffe set up the Bridging Barriers program, one of his goals was to not just do awesome research at UT, but also to change the way research works here a little bit. And I think that that is something that we have actually seen some real success in, you know, well before the Bridging Barriers Moonshot program concludes, the communication between people who are otherwise going to be in silos has been fantastic. And the more those people are communicating, the more recognition there's likely to be in the PNT level that things are, can be weird. And by being weird or semi-successful, also be really productive on an intellectual and scholarly level. So the next step is, is finding people um, in the, the tier up, uh, you know, reviewing those cases and making decisions, bigger decisions about what departments are valuable and what work is valuable and who should be 
given replacement hires and how people should be, you know, how promotion dossiers that have been voted on by PNT should be evaluated. That's the the next set of people to whom this the the not just the word interdisciplinarity, but the the process and the practice of interdisciplinarity needs to be communicated effectively. I don't know that that'll solve the problem, but I think that I think that there is hope, and I think that it's it's systems change. I mean, it, which is always slow. It just is, and I think. What I hear you saying, Adam, is we have some of the, the the projects or the, you know, like the grand challenge, you know, like those bridging barrier challenges, like those are those are out there. And and perhaps that's the the first move towards a collective understanding or building enough cross section of people from all the levels who are part of those experiences that they begin to value them or see them or speak to them. You know, we can we can slowly crawl our way that direction. I will I will give you an example of where I can I can actually see this changing. Um, And that has to do with data management and data sharing in the grant programs that I have been that I've reviewed for and that I've written for in only the last 10 years. There has been a sea change in people's attitude toward what happens to data. And that has not only been researchers saying we should be sharing our stuff with each other, but also funding agencies saying we're not going to give you money unless you have a plan to preserve and share this stuff. And there's a feedback loop between what funding agencies say and what universities prioritize, right? So if you get money for doing something, then that becomes a valid thing. And then that valid thing you do more of, and then you, you know, convince people to get more money. And that changes the way the the granting agencies are working. And I think that one of the areas where, especially in the humanities, we could be doing a a better job um, in sort of explaining the value that we provide is in our connection with communities, right? So the, the funding agencies on certain levels have come around to ideas that we're promoting about interdisciplinarity, about data sharing. But I think, you know, having at a public institution, having the voters of Texas say, this thing that UT is doing is really meaningful to me. I can see why my tax dollars pay for a university. That's the, that's the other the other part of it. And the more we can do that in ways that, again, are effective and resonate with people where they are, the, the better off we're going to be. Well, and it sounds like you are... You're headed there, and I love that that we are we have a hopeful note here because sometimes it can feel like, as Katie said, change is slow and it's hard, especially at a systemic level. And yet, you've seen change, and you and you you have reason to be hopeful. And so, Adam, we are thrilled that you took this time to visit with us this afternoon and shared some of your your story. We we got the direct through line from from being that kid in Sicily at his first dig until today, where you're an esteemed researcher and and teacher. Which for us, we value so much your commitment to education and. Whether you have formal pedagogical training or not, you are a rock star teacher and and recognized for that. And so we are we're grateful for you taking time to visit with us today. Thanks for listening. Can I can I say one last thing that I really had not thought about until this conversation, which is how every conversation I have with PTFs goes, right? Like some brand new thing is like, holy crap, I really need to, I really need to verbalize this. Um in explaining that thread, I remembered, and you know, this is never very far from my mind, that one of the measures I use for what is successful in teaching is stuff that worked for me, 
right? So I say like, I learned better. I remember papers I wrote. I don't remember things I read in college. I remember doing things in the field. I remember less being told things. I am coming from a very particular position, right? Not only am I white and straight, but I had the resources to go on a dig. And I had an aunt who's an archaeologist. So this is, this is not, I think, a position that anyone should be assuming our students are in. And so I, my, my biggest challenge moving forward is to figure out how to adapt my practice, not only in the classroom, but also in terms of research engagement with undergraduates, so that I'm not just assuming that everybody is basically me, uh, but younger, um, so that there's a way to, to make space for reactions and, and pathways that are not just the ones that I happen to have followed. But that, I, I, it's very clear to me that, you know, my through line is right there and you can see it all the way. And that is my through line. And it is a mistake to project it uh, maybe quite as much as I have tended to do on, onto people who have quite different paths. Well, and Katie and I are both sitting here nodding vigorously to everything that, that you're saying. And yet that's the power of stories. Your story is your story, right? And so everybody has one. And we're really grateful that you shared yours with us. Yeah. Thank you, Adam. Thank you both for listening. This was delightful. Hey, Dixie. Oh, hi, Katie. That was so interesting. One of the things I'm so struck by, Adam, and actually you do this so well too, Dixie, so this is also a compliment to you, but something Adam does really beautifully is, you know, pull together those those strands, you know? So like tracking those core ideas from his story, as you asked, about kind of communication and really kind of also owning when you make a mistake. I love that each of his stories was sort of framed like, here's something I learned from it. You know, or here's something I struggled with and maybe there was some success in this, too, because, you know, we, we you know, we do have success in our struggle. But this sort of holistic sort of reflection on both his own own journey as, as a young person moving into his field and then onward, you know, through his career. Yeah, that, that's a beautiful summary. Katie, I, I think, you know, I'm always struck by certainly the power of, of our personal stories and how it does inform what we do and, and how we do it. And yet that ability and that willingness, which, as you noted, you know, I see it in Adam, that ability to be able to be open and humble and wanting to learn from other people, that there is such power in that. And I think from the interdisciplinary standpoint, that is really what we're talking about here. And it's it's I'm so thankful to have gotten to hear some details from his story because he truly, from, from early days, has blended everything and, you know, nothing is wasted. And so he, he's taking what he learned in that very first dig and applying it in the classroom even today. And I think we're all better people for knowing Adam. Yeah, for sure. That importance of experiencing something, reflecting on it, and then putting it into action. That is that is what I, I see in his practice. And you know, he had that moment of talking about, you know, his own kind of whiteness and the sort of privilege around that. And also at the same time, that is part of how he teaches. And I've seen him do this in action, you know, his his own his owning that and, and making that a part of his story, that positionality or standpoint 
and being super jazzed about what he's done, you know, like that infectious feel we get when we get to hear someone kind of being a lifelong learner or journey person through a field and outside a field and how powerful that is to model in our classrooms and with other humans. Yeah, because what what's contagious about him is that energy and that excitement. And his story happens to be one that could perhaps be, you know, categorized as privilege. And yet I wonder if it doesn't matter most what you do with that privilege. So I look at Adam and I see what he's done coming from that privileged position, but but the gift that he gives away every semester to a whole new set of students and then the ones he's invested in over time for years and years, there's such value there as as you share you share from from all of what you've learned your lived experience and i have learned by having this conversation with you dixie what a delight yeah. i think this is our first time together and it was loads of fun and i i feel like i really learned a lot so thanks me from you as well because i feel like you and adam your backgrounds are much more similar i kept trying to sit back but then i'd be like but wait i want to know this too and so i was delighted to get to do it with you our very very first podcast together and we we got Adam as our guest. You've been listening to The Other Side of Campus, a production of the Provost Teaching Fellows at the University of Texas at Austin. Our executive producer is Mary Newberger. Our producer is Michelle Daniel. And our music and sound design are by Charlie Harper Music at charlieharpermusic.com. For more information, please visit us online at texasptf.org. We hope you'll join us next time on The Other Side of Campus. Thank you. Thank you.